During World War II, there were hundreds of Irish citizens based in Italy. They were diplomats, journalists, priests, members of religious orders. Many of them were part of the resistance to the fascist regime, while a few enthusiastically supported it. A recently published book explores the links between Ireland and Italy in the period 1939 to 1945. It's called Roman Imbroglio. Italy and the Irish during World War II. The author is Isidore Ryan, who joins me now on the line from his home in Paris to talk about some of the uh, fascinating individuals profiled in the volume. A very welcome, Isidore, to The History Show. Thank you very much. Now, one of the great sources for your research is the papers of diplomat Michael McQuite. I think they're in the UCD archive. He was the, the Irish ambassador, or as he was officially called, Minister to Italy. That's what it was known during the, the war years. Somebody, I suppose, slightly overshadowed by uh, T.J. Kiernan, who was the Irish Minister to the Holy See, or more particularly by, by Mrs. Kiernan, Delia Murphy. We'll talk about uh, Kiernan and, and, and Delia Murphy later. McQuite was there in in Rome from 1938 to 1950. What kind of insights, generally speaking, did you get from the dispatches that he sent? McQuite deserves a book of his own. His background was he was, in the First World War, he ended up joining the French Foreign Legion. So he was a Francophile, that's for sure. With Gavin Duffy, he was, he was secretary to the delegation, the Sinn Féin delegation that went to the um, Treaty of Versailles talks uh, in 1919. So by the time he arrived in, in Rome in 1938, he, he was a seasoned diplomat. He'd already spent time as well in Washington. And he'd also set up uh, Ireland's delegation to the League of Nations in Geneva. So his papers are a, a treasure trove on what life was like in Rome during the war, his perceptions of Italy's intentions and what was happening to Italy. And there's a huge lot of insight as well into uh, the lives of uh, the Irish community he was looking after. The one, I suppose, the main message that comes across from this sea of papers is that he was very punctilious when it came to uh, Irish neutrality. So he didn't have very much time for anybody who sort of stepped out of line or, or in any way endangered Irish neutrality which meant that he didn't have very much time for Hugh uh, O'Flaherty, which I'm sure we'll come <laughs> yes, to talk about. we will. Um, but he was but, he was anti-Nazi, though. He was uh, certainly did not He was not a Francophile, of, yeah. yeah. And he had no time for no time for Mussolini. Comes across very, very clearly. Hmm. Now, uh, let's get on to Kiernan, to TJ Kiernan, who was the yes. Irish minister to the Holy See. He and his family, particularly uh, Delia Murphy, his wife, play an important role in the resistance during this period, don't they? And you mentioned Delia Murphy's collaboration with uh, Monsignor Hugh O'Flaherty was, uh, yes. was very, very important. So just go into that, to, into the details of what was going on there. Murphy was obviously this famous Chanos singer. She went down with her husband and her four children at the end of 1941. The position of ambassador or minister to the Vatican had been empty for almost two years. So basically, she kept an open house. The embassy or the embassy premises were very close to the to McWhite. They were very close to each other, the center of uh, Rome. But she kept an open house. I think she was very much the mistress of the household and she invited everybody, not just um, Irish people, people on the run, the Irish ministry to the Vatican. He had at least two people during the German occupation in 1943 to 1944. But at the same time, she, after the war, she claimed that, as was an open house, there was also Germans turning up, and, and not only people on the run, but also people from the 
German diplomatic corps, even Kesselring. She said after the war she'd met uh, Kesselring, for example. As for her dealings with um, Hugh O'Flaherty, well, she had access to the diplomatic car with diplomatic number plates, which facilitated her escapades around town, transporting POWs on the run from one location to the other. There's also a famous episode where the embassy's premises backed onto the Wehrmacht's shoe repair shop. So they got over the wall and they gathered up all the boots, the Wehrmacht's boots, and uh, took them away and apparently shod the shoes of all these escaped POWs. <laughs> that was with her daughter, Blonde. So whether TJ Kiernan knew all about, about this, I'm not sure. He should, must certainly have had wind of it, but um, wasn't exactly kosher from the point of view of a diplomat. Certainly not. And um, what about Kiernan and McWhite? Uh, not perhaps the best of buddies? Well, yeah, sometimes they stepped on each other's toes. McWhite was certainly far more supercilious, if that's the word, when it came to Irish neutrality than TJ Kiernan was. Now, O'Flaherty, just tell us a little bit about the activities of O'Flaherty, because he did, uh, he saved apparently hundreds of Allied soldiers and, and, yeah. and Jews and was very close to being, to being caught. Yes, he escaped on one famous occasion uh, where he was in the Pomphilis Palace in the centre of Rome when uh, the SS had been tipped off that he was there, turned up and he uh, apparently escaped, or so he said afterwards, dressed up as a coal man. Uh, the, there was people delivering coal at the same time in this palace, so he uh, dressed up as one of the coal men and escaped. Flaherty had been in, the, uh, in Rome since the 1920s, so he, he was an old hand by the time war broke out. So you mentioned numbers, the, the organisation, as it was called, it was simply called the organisation, at the end of the uh, German occupation of Rome in 1944. One of the other people that worked with Flaherty put the number of people they helped at about 3,700 so that's the official number is about 3,700. But was O'Flaherty's position atypical when it came to Irish religious in Rome? Because one of the things that comes across from your book and comes across from your blog is that a lot of the doors of Irish religious institutions in Rome were closed to potential refugees. Well, again, that's a difficult question because you had not quite Kiernan as well saying don't do anything to endanger Irish neutrality. If you're taking people, you're endangering Irish neutrality. On the other hand, you've got the Vatican. Vatican or the Pope, Pope Pius XII, is always criticised for his feeble response to uh, the roundup of Jews in October 1943. But in fact, he, he did order churches and convents to be open to anybody who needed refuge. So there was this pressure from different directions but Irish communities did end up uh, taking in people, including Jews. So the numbers, there's a lady in Italy who's done research and she has very precise numbers. I think the largest number is 11 at the um, San Stefano Rotondo, which is a big hospital run by an Irish order called the Little Sisters of Mary. They're known as the Blue Nuns. So they took in 11 people. That was a hospital that was run by Mary Ambrose, Mother Mary Ambrose, who was from Tipperary. Then you had the Dominicans in San Clemente, who took in four or five people. You had the Carmelites uh, under a man called Kenneth Leahy. He took in several people as well. The Irish College, a little more reticent, they took in one or two. So overall, they may have taken in a couple of dozen people. Mm. Yeah, different various communities. 
Moving out of Rome, but staying with, um, with, with Catholic resistance, you profile a priest called Daniel Sloan. Um, he was in northern Italy. He became something of a, a chaplain to the partisans, didn't he? Well, that's an, another story that deserves to be told. McQuaid uh, made notes for his either autobiography, but he never got round to writing it, unfortunately. Same thing with Daniel Sloan. He took notes about his time in Italy and they went up in flames in, um, in a fire in County Cork in the 1950s. But we still have his correspondence with some of his colleagues in the Rosminian order in Italy. So Daniel Sloan was, yes, he was in the Rosminian order in northern Italy in a place called Streza on a lake between Turin and Milan. It was the HQ of the Rosminians. It was taken over by the Germans in September 1943. So Sloan had to move out. He moved up the mountains to a place called um, Santa Maria Maggiore, where the Rosminians had a big convent. So in October 1943, that whole area was taken over by partisans, the Italian partisans. They kicked out the uh, fascists and they declared what was called the Repubblica do Sola, which basically covered, uh, I think it's about 16,000 square kilometers of mountain. Daniel Sloan was there. The actual Rosminian convent was turned into a um, sort of liaison center come hospital for the partisans. So he ended up uh, acting as chaplain for this Repubblica Dossola. The fascists and the Germans lost no time reclaiming the territory they'd lost to this uh, partisan army. And I think, I have no confirmation, but it was, Sloan was not a pacifist, that's for sure. I think he, uh, he was liaising with SOE, the Secret Operations Executive in Switzerland, to uh, parachute arms into this Repubblica Dossola. So there was a price on his head. In any case, November 1944, the fascists uh, come back. They close down this Repubblica d'Osola. Sloan has to flee for his life. He flees over the mountains. He gets into Switzerland and he spends the rest of the war in Switzerland. He dies in Florida in 1999. There's a big, long obituary in the Florida Catholic that year for him. And there's not one single mention of his <laughs> activities in Italy. So... Another fascinating character that you write about uh, was very taken with this uh, particular individual, Darina Larisi, a journalist yes. from uh, Rathgar. Tell me about her. Yes, well, I suppose she was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, she had gone to Paris to do postgrad studies in the Sorbonne. She was a very brilliant uh, lady, that's for sure. Uh, her father had been chess champion, Leinster chess champion. Anyway, his daughter uh, went to the Sorbonne. She came home in September of 1939. She'd met an Italian, I think his name was Macchi, and she went down to meet him in Milan in March 1940. Of course, a couple of months later, Italy declares war, so she couldn't get back. And the Germans invaded France in May in any case. She she couldn't get back. So she made her way down from Milan to uh, Rome and she started working for American news agencies. She was expelled in, she was actually expelled the very same day that Germany invaded Russia, 22nd of June 1941, because the Italians felt that she was spying for these, uh, I think a bit like this Wall Street journalist in Russia now, he's accused of spying on Russia. It's the same thing happened to her. So she made her way to um, Switzerland. She got as far as Switzerland and she quickly met a very well-known writer uh, called Ignazio Silone. But she ended up uh, marrying Ignazio Silone and working as his factotum. 
Ignazio Silone had been expelled from Italy years before. He had been uh, one of the leading lights of the Italian Communist Party. By the way, it was found out after he died that he had uh, betrayed the entire Italian Communist Party leadership in the process. But he was in Switzerland. He met uh, Darina Larasi. Uh, they fell in love. She acted as his factotum. He initially had contacts with the British, with the SOE, Special Operations Executive, a guy called McClaffery. They didn't get on, so he brought his services to the OSS, the nascent OSS under Dulles, the Americans. And along with Darina Larrasi, they organised propaganda into Italy. Another person who was in Italy at this time is the brother of James Joyce, Stanislas uh, Joyce. He was... um I think, fired from his job, his university job, twice. Tell me a little bit about his experience, his wartime experience in Italy. Yes, again, there's another backstory. He, he was described as Poncho Sanchez, as uh, James Joyce's Poncho Sanchez, because he went down to uh, Trieste shortly after James, uh, and he constantly left, uh, helped him and lent him money, etc. So James Joyce left uh, Trieste just before Italy joined the First World War in 1915. Uh, Stanislas stayed behind and was imprisoned for his trouble in Austria by the Austrians. He was a rather difficult (laughs) individual, I think you could say. He was dismissed from his job in the University of Trieste in 1937, initially, for his protests against Italy's uh, invasion of Abyssinia. So he pulled a few levers and he managed to get his job back. But three years later, he was dismissed again, again for his criticisms against the Mussolini in the fascist regime, and he was told to leave uh, Trieste. So he spent a war in Florence instead. He wasn't allowed to stay in Trieste. He lost his job. He was penniless. He sort of knew some people. He knew, for example, Ezra Pound, people like that, sort of gave him some support. Wouldn't have thought uh, he was terribly simpatico with Ezra Pound, philosophically uh, or and level, Perhaps not politically, but Ezra Pound knew his brother. As well as that, one of the paradoxes of Italian fascism is that, why yes, they expelled Stanislaus Joyce from Trieste and dismissed him from his job, but he was still writing away on his brother in Italian literary magazines right throughout the war. So it it wasn't as murderous a regime, if Mm. that's the way you could put it, as the Nazi regime. There was a certain amount of flexibility, let's say. But he spent the, the war in Florence. Finally, a less savoury, but nonetheless very interesting character, Charles Bewley. Bewley was the Irish envoy in Berlin during Hitler's rise to power. But he also spent some of the war, at least, in Italy, didn't he? Yes. I mean, the great mysteries to this day is how he managed to travel so freely between Berlin and Rome. So basically, he was being looked after probably by the German diplomatic corps because he's he was proud that he knew Rippentrop, who was the German foreign minister. He may also have got carte blanche from the German security services because he, he spent an awful lot of time trying to make himself useful to the German secret services, intelligence services. So he, he was kicked out, as you say, by de Valera from his position as minister to Berlin. And in 1938, he wrote this notorious report on Kristallnacht. That was basically the last straw. <laughs> He'd become completely Hitlerian. So de Valera basically dismissed him from his job. He went back to Dublin very, very briefly. And then he went back to Berlin. And from Berlin, he made his way down to uh, Rome, officially as a journalist for an organization called Scandia Press, which was an anti-communist news service set up by the German secret services. And he 
went around gathering information from his diplomatic sources because before he went to Berlin in 1933, he had been minister, Ireland's minister to Rome. So he had plenty of contacts in Rome. So he gathered intelligence. He made frequent journeys to Berlin, trying to make himself useful. I don't think he was very useful. He ended up in a place called Merano at the end of the war in northern Italy, which was freed by the Americans. The Americans turned him over to the British. The British initially brought him down to Cinecitta, which is the Italian Hollywood, which they used as an internment center. And then they brought him up to a place called uh, Terni. He spent several months there with Mussolini's uh, widow, <laughs> who spent some time there. And he was eventually released under pressure from the Irish Foreign Affairs Department. But he's up there with Lord Ho-Ho, I suppose, mm. and we know what happened to Lord Ho-Ho. He was quite friendly, I think, at, some, at one point. He I went, mean, yes, with, he met, with he met Lord Ho-Ho. Yes, mm. yes, yes. I claim to be on intimate terms with Goring and, and Himmler as well, but uh, That's e- right. e- even less likely a relationship than uh, Stanislas Joyce and Ezra Pound, apparently <laughs> he befriended Hugh O'Flaherty in Rome. They knew, he knew, so, well, again, he, both had been in Rome since the 1920s, so inevitably I would have thought they knew each other, Bewley being the Irish envoy in Rome in the 1920s. So that, yes, they met during the war, even though they were on opposite sides, and they met after the war. They were bridge, they played bridge together uh, until Bewley died in 1969. I actually tracked down his uh, tombstone, which I don't think anybody else has ever tracked it down, but I've tracked down Charles Bewley's uh, tombstone uh, just outside Rome. Anyway, fascinating subject matter. My guest is Isidore Ryan. We've been talking about some of the stories contained in his recently published book, Roman Imbroglio, Italy and the Irish during World War II. And you can find more information about some of the individuals we've been talking about on his website, irishinitaly.org. Isidore, many thanks for joining us this evening on The History Show. Thank you for having me. That's all we've time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items as well as podcasts are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. My thanks tonight to Tommy O'Sullivan and Harry Buckless on sound and our researcher Ian Kennelly. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, for me, Miles Dungan and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>